Well, good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your presence here. We welcome you to this place, God, and we just ask that you speak to our hearts. God, we, we all, um, we've come because we want to hear from you, Lord, and we want to we want to know how to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to you, in a way that is um, in line with how you've designed our lives to work. So God, right now, we just open up our hearts and our minds to you, Lord. We set aside the things that are pressing in on us so that we can hear from you, God. I just ask that you um, you hold back anything that would distract us today in the name of Jesus and give us the ability and the freedom to hear from you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're talking about happiness. How, how do you get happiness in your life? We started this last week and we talked about how the resurrection, Jesus coming back to life, being risen from the dead, is really one of the starting point for experiencing lasting happiness. If he didn't rise from the dead, Scripture says then, um, for those of us who, who follow him, our, our faith is really worthless without that. We would still be dead in our sins, the Scripture says. And so, his resurrection makes all the difference in the world as far as us tuning into happiness. And so, but I want to look at this over the next few weeks. What produces happiness in our life? There's some pictures I'd like to, to, um, to walk through in just a second with you. And you have an assignment, okay? So um, your assignment is to, is to do this. As we go through these pictures, to give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down, okay? So if this produces happiness for you, um, and just quickly, first, you know, the first instinct you have, okay? So ready? Number one. Let's see. All right. It doesn't have to be your family. We could talk about family in general. If you feel <laughs> different, you know, you could, you could be like this, you know. You could be, eh, depends on the morning, you know. But, okay, what about this one? Humility. Humility. Is that bring... I see some thumbs down. I see some neutral. Okay. All right. What about the next one? Eh. <laughs> I see all the men's thumbs lifting up a little higher there. <laughs> yeah. I bet that would bring some happiness. What, what about this next one? Honesty. Honesty. This is it's kind of a mixture. A little bit of thumbs down, a little thumbs up. So what about this next one? Beautiful home. See, there's a little bit of mixture still, okay? What about this last one? Brokenness. that make you happy? Well, over the next several weeks, we're going to look at this topic. We're going to look at what produces lasting happiness. We want to look at this whole area because it's something that Jesus talked about in the Bible. How do we get happiness? How can we keep happiness? Where does it come from? How do we pass it on to other people? That's what I want to look at today. Um, when it comes to happiness, sometimes we just view happiness as just depending on what happens to us. You know, we, we think happiness is all about what happens to me, what, what hits me from the outside. In fact, the root word of the English word happiness is happenstance. If you were to look up the word happenstance in the dictionary, you'd find this is a chance happening or event. And that's kind of where we get our English word happiness from, happenstance. Oh, just chance events, you know, the things that just happen to us. If we, if we win the lottery, if, we, if the angels win, if the Dodgers win, if our, you know, if our favorite team wins, 
then, then we'll be happy. The problem is, if you are always defining happiness by what happens to you, you're going to have a real challenging time of experiencing anything consistent in happiness. Because what we're going to look at is that there's so much stuff that happens to us on the outside that is really, really out of our control. We have very, very little control as to what happens to us. There's all sorts of random things, trouble, strikes, there's different things that happens that affect our happiness. So if our happiness is only tied to what happens to us, then we're going to have a hard time finding it. Did you know there's actually an entire field, there's an entire field of research on happiness? It's called positive psychology. And um, there's, there's, you can actually, you know, study this area of happiness. You can get, I'm not sure if you can actually get a degree, like a Bachelor of Arts in Happiness, but, um, but there is a field of study, there's a research, positive psychology, that focuses on fulfillment in life. There's people that have devoted their, their research and their lives to studying this whole area. What, where do we get happiness? There's a professor in uh, Illinois, University of Illinois, his name is Dr. Ed Diener, who for the last 20 years has been studying what brings happiness into people's lives. And um, I can imagine when he talks to people about his job and what he does, he probably gets some funny smirks because of that. And um, I experience the same thing. When people ask me, what do you do for a living? And I say, I'm a pastor. (laughs) They, They got that expression on their face. And I'm sure for him, he has the same response from people as he studies fulfillment and happiness. But some of the things that he has discovered... Uh, may surprise you. Here's some of what the research tells us. You know, we always talk about money, money bringing happiness. Actually, Scripture says that, well, we're going to look at that in a second, but money, according to his research, doesn't really affect our happiness. He studied it for 20 years, did polls, and he, you know, he surveyed people, and the common thread was that money didn't really produce lasting happiness unless you lived below extreme poverty. And so if you were um, under that extreme poverty line, as soon as you had enough money to bump up to above that, then money could no longer um, bring happiness into people's lives. Have you experienced that? Where you think, oh, just a little bit more money, so you get a raise, and you're thinking, oh, I've got, I've got plans, it's gonna, things are just going to be better. But before you even get the money in your bank, you've already spent it, possibly. And you, you've charged it on something. You know, or, or you just begin to increase your, your lifestyle. And so, again, money, you're always chasing the next dollar and the next raise. So money doesn't affect happiness. Another thing that his research shows is that your climate doesn't really affect happiness. Sometimes we think, if I just lived in a cooler climate with real sunny skies, and you know, which you know, we get to experience that. But does the climate really affect happiness? According to his research, it doesn't. I asked somebody who lived in Portland recently that I, that I saw, I said, oh, I hear everybody that lives up there in the Northwest is always depressed. And he's like, no. I'm like, oh, okay, well, the research is true. You know, it's, it really is, it's more than just climate. It's more than just temperature. Even education, high HQ, all those things that we think might bring us more happiness, his research showed that it bared no impact on happiness. What about age? you think age has something to do with happiness? Certainly, maybe the younger you are. The research showed that the older you were, those who were over 55 had more happiness than those who were younger. That those people in their 20s, 
he found out, had many, many more days where they were unhappy. So, you know, younger age, it's not even, that's not even where happiness is found. But two things were consistent. When he looked at all the studies, two things he found out. Happiness anchors in these two things. One is a strong religious faith. And then secondly, a strong connection to friends and family. If there's a social network, if you're connected to people, those two things, having a belief, having a religious faith, and then being connected to people. But, but is, that, is that it? That's what his research shows. But what does God have to say about this? What does the Bible say about this whole topic of happiness? In Matthew chapter 5, there's a passage of Scripture where Jesus talks about happiness. He talks about blessing, where we find lasting blessing in life. This, is, this comes from one of his most famous sermons, known as the Sermon on the Mount. And um, in his sermon, he just begins to walk through things. And he offers something very, very different to us than what the world says brings happiness. Matthew chapter 4, just before, this, um, before these verses we're going to look at, it says this. I'm just going to read you. It's not on the screen. News about Jesus had spread all over Syria. And people to... And people brought to him all who were ill who were with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the, De- the Decapolis, which is the ten towns, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So Jesus had stirred up all this attention in his ministry. This is very early on in his ministry, but all sorts of people were flooding or just flocking to follow him because they wanted to just get up close Hear what he had to say. They wanted to, if they were dealing with some sickness, they wanted to get up close because they believed he had the power to heal them. And so all these crowds are pressing in on Jesus. And then chapter 5, it says this. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. Anytime a a teacher would do that, a Jewish teacher would would sit down, what it meant was that whatever he was going to say was authoritative. Okay, This was just a tradition that they would do. And so he, he goes up, he leads people, and then he sits down. And so when he does that, you can imagine everyone that was talking was probably hushed to silence because they wanted to hear what he said. His disciples also came to him, and he began to teach them. Okay? So he goes into this long message, okay? And we're just going to look at the first part of it this morning. But nine times in this message, he's going to use the word blessed, Okay? Verse 3 is going to start. He's going to begin to say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to read you what it says. But it's interesting. In all these phrases, he used this word, blessed. And this is a Greek word that could be translated blessed, happy, or fortunate. Okay? And and basically, it's different from our English translation of happiness. Okay? So it's kind of interesting. When he's talking about happiness, or when he's talking about the blessing that we get for the things, the insights he begins to talk about, it's, it's really he's talking about how to find lasting happiness, how to find lasting blessing in your life. If we're going to experience you know, God's divine favor or it, just God's goodness in our life, then we want to tune in to what Jesus is talking about here. And so look at what he says. I'm just going to read... Um, the first few verses here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
He touches on three things. That's all we're going to look at this morning, these first three. Blessed are the four in spirit. Okay? And, and the first one, it's interesting. All of these are somewhat unexpected sources of blessing. They're kind of backwards. You would not think that these things would provide us any hope at all, any peace at all. But Jesus says this is where we find it. Here's the first thing, and I've got you've got a listening guide in your in your outline and in your bulletin, so if you'd like to follow along. The first insight Jesus says is this realize your need for God. This comes out of verse three. This principle comes from that. Realize your need for God. Verse three, again, it just says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being poor in spirit is, is not what it seems on the surface. We hear the word poor and we think monetary, we think financial. Oh, so God wants me to be broke. He wants me to be impoverished. And then the kingdom of heaven is mine. It's really not what he's talking about. It's, it's interesting. He, he's talking much more about what's going on on the inside of us, our spirit, the poor in spirit. Some Bible translations actually interpret this incorrectly. They, they just say, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's actually incorrect because he's talking about what's He's talking about the poor in spirit. If Jesus were talking about poverty, he'd use a different word. The word he uses here has a lot to do with what's going on on the inside, impoverished on the inside. We're empty internally. So in other words, Jesus is saying, people who realize on a regular basis their need for God, the kingdom of heaven is open to you. If we'll realize that we're empty on our own, if we'll realize we don't have enough on our own, then God's kingdom is for you. God's peace can begin to work into our lives despite our circumstances if we'll recognize that we really, really need Him. Now, it's just not a one-time occurrence that you find yourself poor in spirit, but this is something that God, I think, really is trying to work into our lives on a regular, daily basis, that we would, we would realize we need Him each day. That we wake up in the morning, we realize, God, I can't start my day off without You. I'm empty without You. I'm lacking in my life without You. So that we would turn to Him. Look at this translation. I don't know if I have this on the screen, but um, Matthew 5.3 in the message, which is a paraphrase, it says, You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and His rule. That's, that's the picture here. When, the, when you're at the end of your rope, when you have nothing else you can do, your, your life seems to be falling apart externally, you feel like you're, you're just broken. And this seems really upside down from our culture, but what God says is if, if you'll come to Him when you're at the end of your rope and you'll just release things to Him, then God begins to open things up for us as far as our happiness. We can experience, some, we can experience something different. And the people that climbed up that mountainside on this day when Jesus was sharing, these were not your spiritually elite people. These were just common folk. They were people like you and me who have real struggles, who face real pressure. And then he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. God's kingdom is wide open to those who realize they need God. And this might be you today. You might be at the end of your rope on several fronts. Maybe things are just slipping away that you, that you really thought you had a handle on. That's right where God wants you to be. He wants you to be at a point where you depend on Him, where you actually need His, a relationship with Him on a regular basis. 
not where you're just call out to him once in a random, you know, moment, but where on a daily basis you experience him because you recognize you're empty. And what he's saying is when you're at the end of your rope, just kind of let go of the rope. Let go of the cares, let go of the concerns, and trust me. And when you do this, when you, when you let go and you release things to him, that's what it means to be poor in spirit and depend on him. When you release things to him, what happens is two things. One is our stress level gets greatly reduced. For those of us, well, I would say for most of us here, that experience a high level of stress. Some of us, we just kind of walk around and we're kind of like a carbonated soda that's been shaken up. And we need a little sign that says, warning, contents under pressure. And we're just ready to blow up at anyone and on anyone that comes near. And then our family, they just walk up unsuspecting that we've been shaken up. And they walk up and interact with us. And, and we've, we've all done this. Or we've experienced the, the blowout as other people have blown up on us who, who are under a lot of pressure. But if we'll, if we'll just release our, our lives to God when, when we're at the end of our rope, if we'll recognize we need Him and we just invite Him to be part of our lives each day, this, this just turns things around for us. Our friends can really enjoy us. Our family can really enjoy us. Another thing is, if when you're at the end of your rope, you're just willing to release your life to God, and just say, God, I'm yours. Please help me. The second thing is that power is released into your life. God can work His power into your life this is what Scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. You have a guy named Paul. And he was dealing with an ongoing trial in his life. He had some pressure from the outside. Something that he was dealing with, and it wouldn't go away. Some people say it's, some people say it's a spiritual attack. Some people say it's a physical attack. Like he, he had an, uh, an eye problem. But he had this... He had this experience where he wanted some relief for it. He kept asking God, would you take it away? Would you take it away? Would you take it away? And it's kind of like us. We have these different things in our life that we'd like to be different. And we say, God, if only you would change my marriage. Or if only you would fix my kids. Or if only you'd give me a better job. Or if only my friends would relate to me kindly. You know, then my life would be better. And we do all these if-onlys. And that's kind of like what Paul, he's praying, God, if only you would just take this away. And then, this is his answer from God. God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. Or in other words, my grace is all you need. He's saying, I am all you need. For my power is made perfect in weakness. See, God cannot work in our lives if we, if we are in control. Unless we recognize we need Him, unless we give up the things that we're holding on to and we're gripping so tightly to, then God can't release His power into your life. He has to be invited. We have to yield control to Him on a regular basis. And so this is, that's why, why Jesus is talking about this first. This is a starting point for experiencing blessing or happiness is to recognize that you're poor in spirit. We need God. This is the secret of strength is admitting that we're weak. Which is just, it's backwards for us. There is a secret of finding power and it's in admitting we're helpless without God. We have to see ourselves as dependent. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. He says, 
the insight he gives us is this. Face your failures and your sin honestly. Face your failures and your sin honestly. You see, we all make mistakes. Every single one of us. None of us have got it all together. None of us are perfect. And um, most of us, and if you're like me, you have a very, very hard time admitting when you've done wrong. You do wrong. It's, you know, for me, it's, you know, my wife and I will have a, a disagreement and uh, she'll bring it to my attention and she'll be, she'll be like, Josh, I just don't understand why you don't see this. I'm like, well, because I'm right. That's why I don't see it. <laughs> and she's like, well, but you said this and that was hurtful. And I'm like, well, but I'm right. I'm thinking I'm right. I'm right. And it just takes so long. Oftentimes I have to walk away and process and realize, yeah, I've done wrong here. It's just so hard for me to admit that I've done wrong. This is very common for us, to admit that we do wrong. I want to show you a video clip here from Everybody Loves Raymond. And in this clip, Marie, Marie is Raymond's mother, okay? He's Raymond's mom. She skillfully deduces that Raymond and Deborah lied to her to get out of spending time with her. Now, they don't exactly love, they don't enjoy spending time with mom. And so pay close attention to Raymond and Deborah's reaction and how, how the whole family just kind of responds when all of their own lies are uncovered as well. Let's take a look. Because you didn't have a headache. You lied to me. You both did. Oh, Marie, how can you think that? You are way off, right, Ray? How did you do that? <laughs> I can put things together. You think I was born yesterday? Anyone? <laughs> Marie, we didn't really like the chicken cacciatore you made for us, so we ordered Chinese instead. Hey, Marie! When she came over this morning, I think she noticed the takeout containers. It was just a matter of time. <laughs> Marie, now we know what little respect you have for us. Well, come on, Ma, look, it's no big deal. It just, it, it snowballed from one tiny little lie. So when you lied right to my face, you consider that a tiny little lie? No, I just... I mean, just Deborah and I were. Don't bring Deborah into yeah, this. Yeah, Ray. <laughs> Look, Ma, I just, just didn't want to hurt your feelings. That's all. My feelings? It's obvious you don't want to be with me. And your tiny little lie is actually the one that hurts the most. Listen, Ma, about your chicken cacciatore. <laughs> Amy was the one who threw it out. You threw out my food? Food that's specially made for you? Wait a minute, you didn't make that food for Robert. You made that cacciatore for Ray for your special night together. Ma? 
Is that true? No, I made two. Tell me the truth. Did we only get it because Raymond didn't show up? Give me a minute. <laughs> We, we all just have a real hard time coming clean. Whether it's in our relationships when we've done wrong or, or if we've just sinned against God. We've done something. We've blown past His boundaries. We've violated something He says you do not want to violate. We've walked away from some commitments or whatever it is. You know, when we, when we fail to face our failures and our sin honestly, it's like a snowball effect. It gets worse and worse and worse. And you see that happening here. Nobody wanted to come clean. On Friday, news broke that uh, another professional athlete has been using steroids. And same scenario happened again with, with this time, um, a cyclist, Tyler Hamilton. You may not have heard about this, but he's a Olympic gold medal cyclist. And he tested positive a second time for steroid use. And in his retirement announcement, you know, he, he looks pretty broken up over it. But it's interesting. His, his whole announcement, you know, he talked about how he is he's sick, he's working through some depression, and he's going to retire and he's walking away from the sport. And he didn't really call it what it was. He didn't really say, and even though he acknowledged that he knew that there was steroids inside of a medication he was taking for depression, he didn't really come clean. It was, and for, for like five years, I think, um, the spotlight has been on him and steroid use. His name has been on those secret lists of, of people who take steroids. And so, you know, anytime an athlete is found out about, they tend to, you know, in the moment, they don't come clean. They, you know, there was even baseball players a few years back that testified and said, I did not use steroids. And what happened? Later they had to eat their words because, you know, many of them did. We, we, we just have a tough time with this. Whether it's dealing with stuff with our friends when we've blown it or family when we've blown it, or when it's just, Admitting to God, God, I've done wrong. I, I you know, I, I blew past your boundaries. We, we struggle in this area. Look at verse 4. Jesus says this whole area is really important to finding happiness. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourning here refers to a brokenness or grieving over wrongdoing. You've done something wrong. And it's broken you. It, you're grieving over the fact over the fact that you've you've messed up. There's nine different Greek words for sorrow. There's nine, the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek, and the New Testament, which was written in Greek. There's nine different words that describe sorrow because it's such a common human experience. There's all sorts of different ways to describe it, but this word used for sorrow is the most extreme form of 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 anguish and grieving and mourning. This, this usually refers to when you've blown it. You've messed up and you're broken over it. You're so broken that it brings you even to the point of tears. So this is the place, this is when you come to the place where you just confront your past, you confront your failures and your sin, and you deal with it. You don't pretend that you're perfect. You don't pretend that you've got it all together. Because you know, the only place that all of us are perfect is on our resume. That's the only place. We're all perfect on our resume. And you look at your resume and you're like, man, I'm, I am just amazing. You know, but in, in the real world and in real life, we all know that our real life resume is kind of checkered with some stuff. It's kind of messy. 
Because all of us miss God's mark for living. And so what Jesus is saying here is come to grips with your failings and emotionally respond. Confess. Get that stuff off your chest. You do not have to carry that stuff around with you. The things that we've done. Now, I, I can guarantee that in this room, every single one of us, you know, we've got some stuff this week that we've, we've messed up in. And maybe you've already cleared that up. But for many of us, if we were to think through our relationships, we were to think through the way we treated our friends and our family, you know, there's some things, maybe some interaction we had that just wasn't right. That's the stuff that God wants us to release. That's the things He wants us to be broken up over and to actually mourn over in a sense. Mourning in the sense of being broken and truly repentant and sorrow, sorry for what we've done. I'd encourage you, if there's some things that God's brought to your mind, things that you've, you've done towards other people that's not right, to jot that down and to say, you know what, I need to clear this up. I need to clear this up. If it's something related to just sinning against God, some area that He has said, you know, whether it's lying or, or lust or, <clears throat> or cheating or, you know, there's certain things that, some boundaries maybe that, that you've made commitments to God and you're, you're not keeping those commitments, clear that up with Him. The Scripture, it says, blessed are those who mourn. <clears throat> those who mourn, this is a present participle. What it means is it's, it's, the language is indicating that it is continuous action. This is continually going on. Blessed are those who continually mourn, for they will continually be comforted. That's something we have to get our minds around that. God wants us to stay in a state of continual mourning. In the sense, He wants us to be clear. He wants us to continually be probing, thinking through our lives, thinking through our relationships, the way we treat each other, the way we treat Him, and just constantly be mulling over that stuff. And God, I want to be clear with you. I want to be clear with others. And as we do that, Scripture says He comes alongside us, He forgives us, and He comforts us, for they will be comforted over and over and over again. <clears throat> One of the greatest kings of Israel, he experienced this. He'd done some horrible things that involved um, adultery and murder. And, and then look at what he says. He lied to cover it up. In Psalms chapter 51, verses 3 and 4, he was broken, he was mourning. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Then he says, Create in me a clean heart. Oh, hang on. He says, For I know my transgressions. Oh, wait, no, I already read that. Do we have verse 10? Verse 10 says, um, Create in me a clean heart, O God. So after he's, he's broken up over it, he asked God to restore him. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. You see, he gets it off his chest and he asks God to bring joy back into his life. Because when we've got stuff weighing us down, failing, failures, mistakes, sin, it, it takes the joy of life away. We, we're not capable of carrying this heavy backpack full of all these heavy, heavy guilt. You know, these burdens that we carry. And so, he's saying, we not, we need, if we're going to get joy back, we need to release that stuff to him. On the other side of mourning, there's always comfort from God. Look at the third area that Jesus says we can experience happiness. It's this. is treat others with humility. Humility is tied to the first thing that Jesus talks about. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is seeing yourself humble 
humbling yourself before God is, is the first one as well. But this has to do with treating others with humility, this, this next one. Humility is a real challenge for all of us. Natively, we're all born selfish, every single one of us. We come out of the womb, and we want what we want. And so this goes against the grain in our lives, this attitude. In verse 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So happiness comes to the meek, to those who are meek. Meekness and humility are not necessarily related to weakness. We tend to think, meek, that sounds kind of mousy. That sounds like a little teddy bear, you know, little tiny beanie baby or something, really meek. Oh, he's so meek. You know, or you're, you don't want to be called meek, you know. Well, most guys wouldn't want to be called, you're meek. You know, you, you're, you're, you're feeling like, he just insulted me because it seems passive, it seems fearful, it seems timid and shy. But the word meek in the original language it has a different picture altogether. <clears throat> the original word that we translate meek was used in the context of a wild stallion. It's, it's the picture of, of a wild stallion that's brought under control. It's, being, it's, bright, it's got a bit in its mouth and it's, it's actually in control. It's obedient to its master. And I don't, I'm not a horse person, but I know we've got a few horse people here. But, you know, it's tough work to break a horse, isn't it? It's not easy to break a horse. And we're not easy to come under submission. We're not easy to yield our lives to God. But that does a real thing in your relationships if you'll, if you'll allow God to bring your life under control. This word is also used to describe strong medicine that can create overdose in people if, taken, if you take too much strong medicine. So the word is used for meek medicine is when medicine is brought under control by handling the right dosage and how it can be a real help to someone. So, but if you just started guzzling some medicine... You know, you're going to overdose. But at the right amount, that amount is just what's needed to bring healing in our lives. That's this picture again. Jesus is saying, blessed are the meek. Strong men and strong women who've been brought under the control of God. He's controlling our lives. And, he can, and, and he's, he's changing the way we do life. He's changing the way we interact with each other. It doesn't mean that we're weak, we're doormats, and we let people walk all over us. We don't have any convictions. And, but it means that we do things like God wants them done. We do life His way. And many of the characters in the Bible were meek individuals. Paul was a meek individual, very strong man, but he yielded his life. He brought it under God's control. Moses was another character in the Old Testament that was a strong, strong man, but he, he let God shape him in a different direction so he began to relate and treat people differently jesus was was meek he had all the power of the universe he was god himself yet he emptied himself became a man and he he, he was brought under control he, he and so there's these pictures of of people who are meek they were god men and women brought under his control <clears throat> there's a key to happiness here i, I have this hope for my, my life and for my kids, for my two boys, that, that they would be strong men, but that, that their lives are brought under God's control. And I, my, my youngest, he's two. He's strong, but he's not yet brought under control. And he's just, he's, da- he's kind of a danger to himself and to others. He's, 
He is, if you're familiar with that term. He doesn't know, he doesn't know his own strength. He doesn't know his own um, you know, pain threshold. And, <clears throat> but I want to harness all that strength and allow God in the right time to just direct his life and bring all that under control without breaking his spirit down. Because what God's not trying to do, he's not trying to, to weaken us so that we'll just be these weenies. I don't know if you can say that in church, but <clears throat> he doesn't want us to be these weaklings. Maybe he wants to take strong men, strong individuals who will rise up and do what's right for him, but, but yield their lives to him, be under his control. And when you're brought under his control, what happens is we treat people with humility. We treat people as more important than us. So blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We think, oh, if I want to run this planet, if I want to be the, you know, the guy who's running the earth, inheriting the earth, then I need to assert myself. I need to just stand a little taller than everyone else, and I need to look a little bigger and stronger. I need to, I need to bark at people, and I need to demand to get my way. And then I'm going to get the earth. I'm going to be in control. Jesus says it's backwards. It's through humility. It's through meekness. It says we treat people right. It's not about fighting for our rights. So, again, think through that. Think through, how, how do I re- relate to others? Am I, and am I humble in my interaction with others? So you don't have to look far in our culture to see that our society is looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Madonna, we all know Madonna. Madonna was asked if she was a happy person. And she said, I'm a tormented person. All the fame she's had, all the money she's had, she says, I'm a tormented person. Some people think that happiness is found in position and power. Ted Turner, Ted Turner, the media tycoon, owner of CNN, several major networks, he said, life is a B-grade movie. Meaning, man, I'm just not, I'm not getting the fulfillment I had hoped for out of life. Alexander the Great, one of the greatest military conquerors, he conquered most of the, of the known world. After, after conquering everything there was to conquer, history tells us that he wept because there were no more worlds to be conquered. There was nothing left for him to do. His fulfillment was wrapped up in the wrong thing. Harrison Ford, the actor, in an interview, he said this. He said, you only want what you don't have. And the interview asked her, well, Mr. Ford, what, what don't you have? And he said, peace. You see, our society is looking for this happiness. How do we find lasting happiness? And Jesus, he says, it's found somewhere else. It's found in some things that are very different than what we'd expect. The next couple of weeks we're going to look at, there's six more things that Jesus talks about bring blessing or happiness into our lives, lasting happiness. And so I'd invite you to come back. And one of the things I'd encourage you to do this week is try taking these first three insights The first one, realize your need for God. Secondly, face your failures and sin honestly. And then third, treat others with humility. Try to just work one or two of those into your life. Try to to work on that on on a daily basis. Maybe make a commitment to yourself before God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you hold happiness. It's a gift to those who live lives that are pleasing to you. That's what your scriptures tell us. And God, I'll be the first to admit that sometimes come the middle of my week, I just feel like <clears throat> giving up. And, um, and not going to, but just giving up and wallowing in my sorrow and wallowing in the things that I wish I could have differently. And so God, I pray, like, I pray for all of us, Lord, that, that you would 
help us to realize how much we need you, realize how empty we are without you, and then be willing to get rid of some of the baggage we carry around in our lives. Would you give us the ability to do that? Lord, don't let us go on with our lives and just hear truths from your Scripture and do nothing with it. Lord, help us, as James said, to do what it says. Would you give us the the power, Lord, and the courage to do that? We ask your Holy Spirit to work in our lives. And For those that are still processing what it means to have a relationship with you, Lord, I pray that you would begin to answer the questions that they have, Lord. You would begin to verify that you're truly God and that you want to have a relationship with us. Thank you, God, for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.